Welcome to episode 3 of the Bitcoin Worldview podcast, where we talk about math and its surprising ability to describe our physical world. Joining us is Dr. Gabe Bouts. This is a fascinating conversation, and I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did. So welcome to the Bitcoin Worldview series. Uh, our topic for this session is the math behind the matter. And uh, the introduction to that is that those that dive into Bitcoin are usually surprised to discover how deep and far-reaching implications it has on human life and environment. Now, Bitcoin is software, information, and math, and cryptology. And yet it is already starting to describe a new and updated physical future for human flourishing. Now, surprisingly, math is effective in describing and predicting developments in our physical world. So we ask the question, why is that? Why does math work? Now, to help us explore this topic, we have Dr. Gabe Bouch joining us. Gabe attended Florida State University where he graduated with a degree in mathematics and physics. And uh, after working for a nonprofit for nine years, uh, he and his family moved to New Jersey, where he began pursuing a PhD in mathematical physics at the Rutgers University. After graduating from there in 2011, Gabe assumed the lead role at the Freedom Church of Philadelphia, where he regularly speaks on all kinds of subjects related to life and faith. Gabe and his wife Jennifer have six amazing children ranging in ages from uh, 8 to 22 years old and no free time. <laughs> so you came to Iceland in uh, 2017, Gabe, uh, when we did the God's Not Dead event with Dr. Rice Brooks. Welcome and thank you for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great, August. It's great to see you again virtually and fun to have this conversation. Now, I don't think I had a chance to show you much of Iceland when you came, but uh, are, are, is there anything you remember from that visit uh, other than, I think it was cold. <laughs> of course. I think one of the most exciting things was one of my sons at the time in one of his science classes was studying plate tectonics. And we did actually get to go to, uh, I, you could describe it better than I could, one of the places where the, uh, the plates meet and I took yeah. pictures, which yeah. they ended up uh, talking about in their class afterwards. Right, yeah. I, I, think, I think I took you to Thinkwedler, which is one of my favorite places where they used to have the parliament. And that's where the European and the North American plates uh, meet and they're actually going opposite directions, you know, and Thinkwedler sits right there in between them getting whiter, you know, every year. So uh, that's also an interesting factor of having a podcast like this, uh, because timing wise, you kind of sit right in between Europe and, uh, and North America. So you're kind of bridging the gap. Um, well, so you're telling me that we're, we're growing farther apart even right now. Is that what's happening to us? Uh, <laughs> depends on, uh, well, not necessarily. It depends on kind of where on Iceland you're located. If you're on the west side of Iceland, uh, you know, you're, I'm probably parallel to you or, or you know, gotcha. in sync. But on the east side of Iceland, I'm, I'm going further away. So, and I used to live there, by the way. Um, this is good. I hope you can uh, come to Iceland again sometime. Uh, 
And uh, I don't know if we can maintain the record of this podcast of having like every other speaker being an Icelander or someone who has visited Iceland, but we're on a good track record so far. So um, now with the format uh, for our session now, we'll have Gabe share his thoughts for the first uh, 40 minutes or so, or four to five hours. I don't know how long he's prepared. And then uh, we'll open it up for Q&A. Uh, if you have questions during the talk, you know, put them in the Zoom talk, Zoom chat, and uh, we'll, we'll have ample time for conversations uh, later on. So with all of that said, uh, you know, over to you, Gabe. All right. Thanks so much, August, for having me. Great to see the others that are on our Zoom conversation right now. And I will hopefully, hopefully keep it less than 40 minutes and leave plenty of time for Q&A. Uh, as August mentioned, uh, my background is mathematics. In fact, both of my parents were high school or secondary school mathematics teachers. And so I just couldn't get away from it. Uh, at a very young age, when I could barely talk, they were teaching me to count by threes. Not long after that, my mom was introducing me to simple geometrical proofs. And so it's in my blood. And um, as you mentioned, August, I went on to get a PhD in mathematics at Rutgers University. Also, fun fact, uh, I don't know if they do this in other areas, but in mathematics, there's actually a website you can go to called the Mathematics Genealogical Project. And it traces, it's like a genealogical tree of mathematicians. And um, so I can actually trace my mathematical family tree back to Carl Friedrich Gauss. Now that may mean nothing, to some hearers, uh, to others, you might think, all right, that's cool. Now, sadly, just because I can trace that back doesn't actually mean that I'm as smart as Gauss was, but uh, it's still a fun, a fun fact. You know, um, my experience in mathematics is that every stage I went to and learned more and more mathematics, my sense of wonder connected with mathematics just continued to increase. And this is something I've actually observed in a lot of mathematicians. I can remember being in a graduate uh, course with, um, on mathematical physics with a professor and he was uh, starting with basic equations and deriving the energy levels in a hydrogen atom. And you know, he was getting more and more excited as his derivation got longer and longer and the chalkboard filled up with more and more equations. And as he got near the end of the, end of the derivation, he turned around and said to us, it's almost a miracle. And then he went on and continued with what he was doing. He was a very non-religious person, but the wonder of mathematics was striking him in that moment. I can remember talking to one of my other professors as an undergraduate. Uh, he went on to be the Dean of the Faculty of uh, Arts and Sciences. And he said, I remember him telling me, when I study mathematics, I feel like I'm coming into contact with something transcendent something bigger than humanity. Uh, I saw another professor told me, he said, when I saw the theorems of complex analysis for the first time, I thought to myself, there must be a God. Now, a lot of people I know, the closest they ever got to God in a math class was maybe praying that they would pass their test. Please, God, somehow let me pass this test. But uh, my experience with those who have studied advanced mathematics is many times they just begin to experience this sense of wonder and awe. And so I hope to just share a little bit of that with you all today. Um, you know, in my opinion, mathematics is awesome. And you may not think this at first, but mathematics is actually many times surprising. 
Now, because mathematics is in many ways the most purely logical area of study that exists, you might be surprised to hear that mathematics can be surprising, but I have often found it to be surprising. Uh, I'll mention just a few a few things. Maybe this first one you've heard. This is a great this is a great party trick, by the way. So the question is, how many people randomly selected do you need to have in a room so that the probability that some pair of people in that room shares the same birthday is greater than 50-50? So do you understand the setup there? So you know, how many people do you have to have in a room so that if everybody shared their birthdays, there's going to be some overlap there somewhere, some pair? How many people do you have to have so that the chances of that happening is at least 50-50? Obviously, if you only have two people in the room, very low probability that they're going to have the same birthday. Uh, just a few of us are on this Zoom right now, and so the probability that some pair of us has the same birthday is extremely low. So let me just throw it out there. If you haven't heard it before, don't, don't give it away if you've heard this before, but if you haven't heard it before, I'd love for somebody to take a shot at guessing how many people you would have to have in a room so that the probability that some pair of people shares a birthday is at least 50%. What do you think? I'm getting a lot of blank stares. Yeah. This I, is common in, in math classes, right? Yeah, I would, I would say somewhere between 30 and 50. All right. So some people might say like, well, gosh, let's see, if we don't count leap years, there are 365 days in the year, right? So maybe you need, what's, what's a little more than half of that? 183, some people might think, all right, if we had 183 people, maybe that would make it over 50%. August, you say 30 to 50. Any other guesses out there? All right, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll spill the beans. 23, when you have merely 23 people in a room, the probability that some pair shares a birthday is greater than 50%. Now that's surprising, or at least it was surprising to me the first time I heard it. August, you suggested 30 to 50. Actually, if you get up to 30 people, with just 30 people, the probability that some pair shares a birthday is at that point over two thirds, greater than a two out of three chance. So sometimes mathematics is counterintuitive to us. Uh, we're good at real small numbers, right? But uh, sometimes it surprises us. Let me give you another one. Um, imagine a sphere for a moment. Uh, and maybe, you know, to make this even more precise, let's say the earth, the surface of the earth. Now, there's a theorem of mathematics that says that any given moment on the surface of the earth, there is some pair of what's called antipodal points. That is points that are exactly on opposite sides of each other. For example, the North Pole and the South Pole would be antipodal points. But at any given moment, there is some pair of points exactly on opposite sides of the Earth that are at the same temperature and at the same barometric pressure. It is guaranteed that that will always be the case. If we just could freeze a moment in time right now, and, and know what the temperature and pressure were at every point on the surface of the earth, we could find some pair of points that were at not just the same temperature, but also the same pressure. That's surprising, counterintuitive, right? Let me give you one more. One of the most shocking equations in mathematics 
is what's called Euler's equation. Euler was a really prolific mathematician. He had a whole bunch of kids. I want to say like more than 10. Maybe that's why he studied mathematics, so he could keep up with all his kids. And um, they say he was so good at doing mathematics, he could actually have a child on each knee and be solving math problems in his head while he was bouncing two children on his knees. So that's impressive. I have six children, and uh, I could never do that. Anyway, uh, Euler's equation combines what are considered to be the five most important numbers in mathematics. So the five most important numbers in mathematics are zero, one, pi, e, and i, which is the square root of negative one. Now, let me give you just a little bit of background on these numbers. So you probably remember from geometry class the number pi. Pi is the ratio of the circumference of a circle to the diameter of a circle. Pi also shows up in the formula for the area of a circle. Maybe you remember the formula, the area of a circle is pi r squared. Um, the Babylonians 4,000 years ago had estimates for pi. Ancient Egyptians uh, almost as long ago had estimates for pi. Uh, Archimedes who lived in the third century BC had very accurate estimates for pi. So you're probably familiar with pi. You may not be as familiar with a number called E. Uh, e comes up first uh, with a mathematician named Jacob Bernoulli, and it arose uh, addressing a problem in compound interest. So here's the idea. Suppose you're gonna invest $1, and suppose you're gonna make an investment that pays you 100% interest per year. Well, if that's the case, you invest $1. At the end of a year, you'll have $2. Now, suppose that 100% interest is calculated more than once during the year. Uh, it's compounded more than once. So, for example, suppose if you compound it twice. So, you, you get 50% interest after six months. You add that into the total. And then after another six months, you get another 50% interest. You tracking with me? Well, if you do that, you actually get more than $2. In that case, you'd end up with $2.25. Suppose you did it 12 times a year. Suppose you compounded the interest every month. So uh, you get, you know, eight and a half, roughly eight and a third uh, percent interest um, every 12 months. And you compound that. If you do that and you compound 12 times a year, you end up with $2.61 uh, at, at the end of the year. Now, the question is, suppose you continue to compound more and more frequently. Maybe instead of compounding the interest every month, you do it every day. Okay, suppose you do it every hour. Okay, suppose you do it every minute. The question is, if you do that, will you just get arbitrarily larger and larger amounts? And the answer is you will not. Eventually, they will settle in on a certain dollar amount. And you can take this to the limit where you compound what's called compound continuously. You compound infinitely many times during the year. And when you do that, the amount of money that you would end up with at the end of one year is E dollars, which is approximately $2.72. E more accurately is 2.718281828284. It's irrational. It goes on forever, doesn't repeat itself, but that's where the number E comes from, from this wor world of 
compound interest. So you've got pi comes from the world of circles. You've got E, which comes from the world of compound interest. And then you've got this weird number called the imaginary number, imaginary numbers, the square root of negative one, which we call I. Now, this is a strange number, clearly, because normally we think that if you multiply any number by yourself, you can't get a negative number. Well, mathematicians decided to just invent this class of numbers, imaginary numbers, when they were working with um, uh, formulas for cubic equations and quartic equations back in the 16th century. And so they said, all right, well, suppose we just made up a number that had that property, that if you multiply it by itself, you get negative one. And they called this number I, and they called it imaginary because clearly it's not connected to anything in the real world. Nothing in the real world actually works like that. And so this number is called I. So here we have zero, one, pi, E, and I, the five most important numbers in mathematics. Well, as it turns out, these numbers are come together in, the, in basically the simplest possible equation, which is this. The number e raised to the power of i times pi plus one equals zero. Now this is stunning. These five numbers coming from very different areas just so happen to combine together in the simplest possible way. And so these are just a few of the reasons why I say that mathematics it's not just interesting, it's surprising. Now, beyond that, uh, one of the fundamental features of mathematics is that mathematicians prove their claims. So, of course, people make claims all the time and uh, claim that things are true. But one of the distinctive features of mathematics is that mathematicians prove the statements that they make. This is why mathematical theories are almost never thrown out. Because once a statement is proved, it's proved. Now, you might want to consider different assumptions or different starting points, but mathematical theorems don't go away. Because again, once they're proved, they're proved. So for example, how does a mathematical proof work? Well, uh, maybe you're familiar with the prime numbers. A prime number is a number that the only numbers that evenly divide it are one in itself. So for example, seven is a prime number. The only two whole numbers that you can multiply together to get seven are one and seven. Unlike say the number eight, which is a composite number because you can write it as two times four, for example. So an interesting question is, are there infinitely many primes? Or eventually, are there just no more prime numbers? Do you, once the numbers get high enough, maybe you run out of prime numbers. Maybe after you get to a certain point, you only have composite numbers. Well, that's a reasonable question to ask. Do the prime numbers go on forever or do they not? Well, you might start looking up prime numbers and you may know that, uh, uh, you know, one of the problems that's sometimes done in mathematics is people trying to calculate higher and higher prime numbers. But of course, nobody has enough time to calculate infinitely many prime numbers. So... Uh, people calculate really high prime numbers, but um, you're never going to be able to check all the numbers because there are infinitely many. So you might ask, are there infinitely many primes or not? And the answer is yes. And the interesting thing about mathematics is that we can prove that to be the case. 
So I won't go into a proof now, but it's simple. And, um, and again, that's a distinguishing feature of mathematics. That the statements in mathematics are statements that can be proved. Now, let me give you one interesting, relatively recent result about prime numbers in the area of mathematics. Side note, anybody have any idea how many new theorems of mathematics are proved every year? A theorem is just a new true statement in mathematics. Anybody have any idea about how many are proved every year? That's a great question. Uh, I would have to be, take a very wild guess. <laughs> I've heard people say oftentimes, they'll say like, well, haven't we kind of discovered all the mathematics already? Haven't we basically figured it all out? Well, as of a few years ago, something like 200,000 new theorems of mathematics are proved every year. So nobody knows all the mathematics or is even close to knowing all the mathematics. But anyway, here's a relatively recent theorem uh, having to do with sequences of prime numbers. So an arithmetic sequence is a sequence that goes up by the same amount every time. For example, maybe I start with the number two and I add five every time. So two, seven, 12, 17, 22, etc. That is an arithmetic sequence. The length of an arithmetic sequence is the number of terms in that sequence. So if I just say two, seven, 12, that's an arithmetic sequence of length three. Now, suppose we try to come up with arithmetic sequences consisting only of prime numbers. So an example might be three, seven, 11. I increase by four each time, right? I start with the number three, then I add four, then I add four again. And every number I hit, is prime. Now, if I keep going, I, uh, it's no longer prime, right? If I add four again, I hit 15, oh, not prime anymore. And so it's some mathematicians ask the question, what's the longest sequence, arithmetic sequence consisting of only prime numbers? Now, when I looked into this a few years ago, the longest known arithmetic sequence consisting of only prime numbers was length 26. So they found 26 primes that were equally spaced. So an interesting question, at least to some mathematicians, is what's the longest arithmetic sequence consisting of only prime numbers? Well, a recently proved theorem known as the Green-Tau theorem, because of the two people who proved it, is that there are arbitrarily long arithmetic sequences consisting of only prime numbers. That is, there's a sequence of a thousand primes in a row that are equally spaced, a million primes in a row that are equally spaced, a trillion primes in a row that are equally spaced. That's somewhat surprising, but even more surprising than the fact that it's true is the fact that somebody was able to prove this. So again, this is the power of mathematics and one of the striking things about mathematics. And I remember so many times in my mathematical career, hearing statements and just thinking to myself, how in the world could anybody ever prove that? And, um, and there are all kinds of surprises in mathematics. Now, another big surprise came on the scene in the 16th century with the start of the scientific revolution. And this is the surprise 
that the central role of mathematics, of the central role that mathematics played in the physical universe. Let me give you a quote by Galileo. Galileo said this, philosophy is written in that great book which continually lies open before us. I mean the universe. But one cannot understand this book until one has learned to understand the language and to know the letters in which it is written. It is written in the language of mathematics, and the letters are triangles, circles, and other geometric figures. Without these means, it is impossible for mankind to understand a single word. Without these means, there is only vain stumbling in a dark labyrinth. Galileo and others were discovering that the language of the universe is the language of mathematics. Now, you have to understand that for millennia before this, people didn't realize the extent to which this is true. Let me share with you one more quote by um, famous 20th century physicist Paul Dirac. Side story about Paul Dirac, um, really significant physicist. He finished his career where I did my undergraduate work at Florida State University. In fact, our science library was named after him. And I can remember one time I was in the physics building and I was relaxing on a couch and somebody came up to me and said, hey, you know, that couch used to belong to Paul Dirac. And I thought, nice. I'm chilling on a couch belonging to Paul Dirac. Sadly, once again, it didn't rub off on me to an extent that, you know, I became a world-leading physicist, but that was as close as I got to him. So Paul Dirac said this, it seems to be one of the fundamental features of nature that fundamental physical laws are described in terms of mathematical theory of great beauty and power, needing quite a high standard of mathematics for one to understand it. You may wonder, why is nature constructed along these lines? One can only answer that our present knowledge seems to show that it is so constructed. We simply have to accept it. One could perhaps describe the situation by saying that God is a mathematician of a very high order, and he used very advanced mathematics in constructing the universe. Our feeble attempts at mathematics enable us to understand a bit of the universe, and as we proceed to develop higher and higher mathematics, we can hope to understand the universe better. Now, once again, Dirac was not a religious man at all, but when he tried to think about the reality that the universe is written in the language of mathematics, the only way he could describe it was to say something along the lines of God is a mathematician of a very high order. Another British physicist from uh, James Jeans, born in 1877 said, the universe appears to have been designed by a pure mathematician. Now, most of us are used to this because of our cultural moment that we live in. We live on the other side of the beginning of the uh, scientific revolution. And so we're accustomed to hearing this. And so many of us just can't wrap our minds around just how shocking this was to some of the pioneers of the scientific revolution. And I wanna give you um, just one example uh, relayed by a man, Nosan Yanofsky, in a book titled The Outer Limits of Reason. Here's what he says. On March 13, 1781, the English astronomer William Herschel pointed his telescope to the heavens and found a new planet, which came to be called Uranus. 
the motion of this new planet had certain unexplained irregularities. The French mathematician Urbain Le Verrier realized that another planet must be influencing the orbit of Uranus. He sat down and used Newton's laws to calculate the exact position of this heretofore unseen planet. Le Verrier sent a letter to the German astronomer Johann Galli telling him about this planet and exactly where to look for it. The letter arrived on September 23rd, 1846, and on that very night, Galley aimed his telescope at the exact place he was told and found a planet. Galley immediately wrote to Le Verrier, the planet whose place you have computed really exists. The planet was named Neptune. Nothing but pure mathematics was used to find it. Now think about that, how striking that is. Somebody is making observations of the real universe that we actually live in, notices some things, then goes home and does some math. And these calculations lead to the discovery of a new planet. Now that just blew the minds of people on the front end. Again, we take these things for granted because we're so used to hearing it. But this was striking, absolutely striking to the early scientists. Now, all this is connected to a really an important essay written in the 1960s by a Nobel Prize winning physicist named Eugene Wigner. This is a popular level essay and I highly recommend it. You can just Google it. The essay is titled The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. And again, it's a, it's a fascinating article. And in this article, this essay, Wigner asked three big questions. The first question is, why should natural laws exist at all? Now, this is a great question. Why should natural laws even exist at all? Why should it not be the case that everything is just completely chaotic and completely unpredictable? The second question he asks is, given that natural laws do in fact exist, why should we have the mental capacity to be able to discover them. Now, you may not keep up with these things, but there's something like 8.7 million species of living organisms on the planet today. 8.7 million species. Now, do you know how many of those species have the capability to contemplate the laws of nature? As far as we know, one. One living species, only human beings, has the capability of contemplating the laws of nature. Now, the rest of the 8.7 million species of living organisms are doing just fine. They're surviving just fine without this capability. And so it's natural to ask the question, why should we have the mental capacity to be able to do this? We don't need it to survive, even if natural laws do exist. Why should these laws not just be so far beyond us that there's just never, ever going to be a shot that we would be able to discover them? I mean, your pet dog is never going to discover the laws of nature. They will always be beyond him. And so Wigner asked this question. Now, thirdly, and this is where he focuses most of his time in the essay, he says this, given that the universe has these regularities, these law-like features that we can discover. And again, given that we can 
contemplate them and, and think about them and, and even learn something about them. Why is it that mathematics, pure mathematics, which was not developed for the purpose of describing the physical universe, why should it be that this same mathematics ends up describing the universe with such fantastic precision? Now, to understand the force of this question he's asking, you need to know a little something about the difference between what mathematicians do and what physicists do. So physicists want to discover the laws of nature. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to look at the physical universe and figure out, describe it in short law-like statements. Mathematicians, on the other hand, are doing something totally different. It's way more abstract. What mathematicians are doing is much closer to playing what they would consider to be a really interesting game. So mathematicians pursue mathematics because it's interesting to them, because it's beautiful, because they think they can ask interesting questions about it. Um, they do it because they think that it's something they actually have a chance to might be able to get somewhere with. Uh, you know, you might ask, why does a chess player play chess? Because he thinks it's fun, because he finds it interesting. He may even find certain aspects of it beautiful. Well, this is why mathematicians pursue mathematics for those reasons, not because it's connected with the physical universe. And so mathematicians and physicists have very different goals. And so Albert Einstein said this, how is it possible that mathematics, a product of human thought that is independent of experience, fits so excellently the objects of physical reality? The second uh, physicist, Steven Weinberg, again, another Nobel Prize winner said this, it is very strange that mathematicians are led by their sense of mathematical beauty to develop formal structures that physicists only later find useful, even where the mathematician had no such goal in mind. Physicists generally find the ability of mathematicians to anticipate the mathematics needed in the theories of physics quite uncanny. It is as if Neil Armstrong in 1969, when he first set foot on the surface of the moon, had found in the lunar dust the footsteps of Jules Verne. Jules Verne was a writer of science fiction. And so these physicists, again, they see what's going on. They see these mathematicians are just chasing these unique and beautiful and strange mathematical structures. And then it just so happens that these mathematical structures that they're studying just because mathematicians think they're beautiful end up describing the physical universe with fantastic precision. Now, some of the most interesting examples in this regard require very, very advanced mathematics. So we will not talk about those, but let me just give you a few examples um, that are maybe a little more in, within reach. So first let me mention the concept of infinity. Now, um, most philosophers would say that there are actually in the physical universe no, there are no collections of actual infinities. In other words, there are, there's no collection of um, an infinite number of objects. And the reason they say that is because 
it tends to lead to all kinds of paradoxes. Uh, a famous paradox was given, um, named after David Hilbert, called Hilbert's Hotel. And he imagines, he says, suppose you have a hotel with infinitely many rooms in it, numbered one, two, three, et cetera, on for all the natural numbers. Well, if that was the case, you would say, and suppose all the rooms were filled, and then a bus showed up with um, uh, 10 more people on it. And they said, hey, we'd like 10 more rooms. And, the, and the, originally the person, hotel manager says, oh, I'm sorry, all our rooms are filled. But perhaps the person making the request is a mathematician and says, hey, why don't you just ask each person to move to room number 10 more than the room they're in right now? Everybody does that. And all of a sudden there's 10 open rooms. And so what appeared to be a completely full hotel is actually not completely full. Well, it's even worse than that. You could have a bus with infinitely many seats show up and infinitely many people ask for a room and you could make room for those people because you could just say, okay, ask everybody in the room they're in right now to go to room number twice the room they're in right now. Well, in that case, now all the even rooms are taken, but all the odd rooms are available. And now infinitely many rooms are available. And so you can play all kinds of fun games with infinity in this regard. And there are actually uh, much more devastating paradoxes that can be created if you have actual infinities in our physical universe. And so, um, so for this reason, physicists and philosophers in particular feel that it's unlikely that there are um, any infinite collections in our physical universe. Now, as it turns out, all of the mathematics that's used in um, engineering and in physics depends significantly on this concept of infinity. And so if you've ever taken a calculus class, for example, uh, which you need calculus even to properly formulate Newton's laws of motion. In fact, Isaac Newton uh, was such a great mathematician as he was trying to write down um, uh, and, and apply his laws to the laws of planets, he actually had to invent calculus to do that. And the invention of calculus requires this concept of infinity. And so um, we can't even do modern physics or modern engineering without the concept of infinity. Yet, infinity is not something that actually exists in our physical universe. So here's this concept that mathematicians employ and need to employ to formulate the laws of physics, even though we don't see anything like that in our actual physical universe. Um, Yanofsky, whom I quoted earlier, says this, there does not seem to be any physical example of an infinite set. Nevertheless, the ideas of infinity are used in every physics and engineering textbook. Every building that remains standing and every rocket that is created uses notions of infinity in their construction. So this is one example of mathematicians playing with this idea of infinity. And it just so happens that infinity is central to the mathematics that's needed to understand and describe the physical universe. Let me give you a second example, non-Euclidean geometry. So maybe you took a geometry class in high school or something, 
and you learned about Euclid, and Euclid had his um, his famous axioms, uh, his postulates that would govern what we now call Euclidean geometry in his honor. Uh, let me let me mention the first four. He wrote down ten at the end at the beginning of his book Elements, but um, let me just read to you the first four axioms of geometry. Number one. A line segment can be drawn between any two points. That sounds familiar, right? Any two points, we get exactly one straight line. Any, number two, any straight line segment can be extended to a straight line. Number three, given any straight line segment, one can draw a circle having the segment as radius and one endpoint as a center. Number four, all right angles are congruent. That is, all right angles are the same. And then the fifth axiom was known as the parallel postulate. And this is the idea that if you draw two lines in such a way that if you intersect them with a third line, and if the sum of the angles on one side of that line are less than two right angles, then the idea is, in other words, if you have two lines that are not parallel, eventually they're going to intersect each other at some point. Now, this is the famous parallel postulate. And Euler felt that this shouldn't, excuse me, Euclid felt that this shouldn't really need to be its own independent axiom, its own independent postulate, that this one should be able to be proved from the others. And um, it just seems so obvious that it should just be true uh, from all the other axioms. Well, for centuries, mathematicians tried to prove this fifth postulate from the others. Um, and so, as late as 1767, a, math, a, a great mathematician, in fact, D'Alembert, said that uh, the inability of mathematicians to derive the parallel postulate from the others was the scandal of geometry. And so they were up in arms in 1767 that you couldn't prove this postulate from all the others. Well, eventually, some mathematicians, one I named earlier, Carl Friedrich Gauss, others like Lobachevsky and Riemann, realized that, in fact, this postulate was independent from the others. And, in fact, you could consider non-Euclidean geometries by changing that postulate. Instead of saying that two lines are either parallel or they meet in one point, you could change that postulate and say that, no, there are no parallel lines, for example. Any two lines will always intersect. And that if you do this, you'll get entirely new geometries. In fact, there's a really interesting story in this regard. So um, centuries ago, uh, in some of the German universities, if you were gonna be hired as a new faculty member, you had to give a lecture before all the in faculty before you were hired. And they would have some say in whether you were hired. And so Riemann was this up and coming brilliant mathematician and um, and the way it worked is you would give, you would submit three topics that you could potentially talk about. And they almost always picked your first one, your main one, rarely your second one. Well, Riemann put as, as his third topic, non-Euclidean geometries. And he had been dabbling in that some, but it wasn't, you know, where he was spending most of his time. And he thought, doesn't really matter what I put here. Well, as it turns out, Gauss was the giant of the mathematical, fa mathematical faculty at that time. And he was very interested in non-Euclidean geometries. So when Riemann submitted these three different options for a talk, he said, oh, well, I'd like to hear a talk on the third topic. 
So Remond kind of scrambled a little bit like, what is happening? You know, why are they picking on me uh, to put together this talk on non-Euclidean geometries? And when he gave this talk, he apologized for giving a talk about a subject that seemed to be so disconnected from reality that I'm sorry, this is just so abstract. It's not connected to anything in the real world. I'm, I apologize to you for giving a talk on this, on this subject. Well, as it turned out, not too long after that, it was exactly the sort of mathematics that Riemann was talking about that Einstein needed to develop general relativity. And so, again, we see this other example of these mathematicians just chasing things because they can, looking at other logical possibilities, and it turns out to be exactly what's needed to describe the laws of physics. Uh, one more. We talked earlier about um, this imaginary numbers, I, the square root of negative one. Well, as it turns out, it's if you want to formulate the laws of quantum mechanics and write down the most basic equations of quantum mechanics, it requires using imaginary numbers, in particular, I. So again, this was so striking because I seems to have no connection with the real world. I mean, you, you don't get two numbers multiplying together that gives you a negative number. That just, again, that's why they were called imaginary numbers. And yet, that was precisely what was needed to describe quantum mechanics. Now, again, uh, you know, this, this shows up again and again. Uh, the use of modern group theory, uh, uh, use of group theory in modern physics and, um, and the standard model. Uh, Dirac and his, um, his prediction of the existence of positrons. This came out of just studies of pure mathematics. Now, again, remember Wigner's three big questions. Why should natural laws exist at all? Given that they do exist, why should human beings have the mental capacity to discover them? And thirdly, why should mathematics, dreamed up in the minds of curious mathematicians, turn out to describe the physical world with such incredible precision? I mean, what's the explanation for all of this? Why is this the case? Well, in his essay, Wigner wrote this. He calls it a miracle. He says, the miracle of the appropriateness of the language of mathematics for the formulation of the laws of physics is a wonderful gift which we neither understand nor deserve. We should be grateful for it and hope that it will remain valid in future research and that it will extend for better or for worse to our pleasure, even though perhaps also to our bafflement, to wide branches of learning. It's a miracle which we neither understand nor deserve. Now, as I wrap up before we go to Q&A here, I just want to mention a few final interesting things about the laws of nature. I want to consider just for a moment some of their properties, because again, I think this is significant. You know, Wigner notes in his essay the laws of nature are universal in time and space, that they are unchanging. We might put it this way. The laws of nature have the attributes of omnipresence. 
they function everywhere. As far as we know, the laws of nature are consistent throughout the universe. In fact, that's why we had such success in fields like astrophysics and cosmology, because the laws of physics hold everywhere. They are omnipresent. Um, they're eternal. They seem to be unchanging. Uh, they're immutable. Uh, more characteristics. They're immaterial, right? The laws of, they're not, they're not a physical thing. They govern physical things, but they themselves are not a physical thing. They're invisible, right? So they're omnipresent. They're eternal. They're immutable. They're immaterial. They're invisible. We might say they're omnipotent. I mean, try resisting a law of nature, right? It's, good luck with that. Uh, gravity has its effect on you, whether you would like it to or not. Uh, the laws of physics, you're not going to stop them. They, nothing can with, withstand the laws of physics. They're omnipotent. They are, in a sense, transcendent in that they are above um, all things, right? They govern all things, and they, they are above every part of the known universe. But, and yet, in a very different way, they're imminent in that every particle in the universe is governed by the laws of physics. We might say that in a very real sense, they're personal in the sense that they are rational and communicable. In other words, we can talk about them in human language. They obey um, our understanding of rationality. Now, again, some of you who maybe struggled with mathematics courses, maybe you would you know, dispute that, uh, how rational they are. Um, at least mathematicians and physicists would say they're beautiful and they're deep. In fact, beauty is one of the governing principles that physicists and mathematicians use when they're looking to discover laws of nature. So this I think is interesting. Why do these laws of nature exist? How is it that we can comprehend them? Why is mathematics so impressively successful in describing them and consider the nature of these laws, the, their, their attributes. Some would say they seem to have almost divine-like characteristics, um, omnipresent, eternal, immutable, immaterial, invisible, omnipotent, transcendent, imminent, personal, rational, communicable, beautiful, deep, I think it leaves us at a minimum with a sense of wonder. And so um, with that, I'll conclude. Uh, but the mathematics behind the, the universe is fascinating. And uh, it, uh, it's been a pleasure to get to share a little bit about that with you. Well, thank you, Gabe. Uh, very, very interesting and fun. Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, we're not going to move, as you, as you said, into uh, discussion and, and Q&A. I, I know I have a, a list of <laughs> questions and uh, conversation points, but uh, before I get to some of the things I wrote, uh, I want to open, open it up for those uh, on, on the call here with us. If you have any questions, uh, thoughts or reflections on, on what, uh, what uh, Gabe was uh, sharing. If not, I I am going to jump in. Feel free to jump in if you if you have anything. Uh, my first point, uh, Gabe, is I've heard that 
mathematical proofs are tend to get longer and harder to verify uh, every decade or every year. Uh, is that true? And do you see any, how shall I put it? Uh, do you think there's a tendency of reaching a point where a proof becomes so complex and hard to verify that it kind of becomes on, uh, you know, uh, something that you can't really rely on? Fascinating question. Yeah. In some fields, this is certainly true. In fact, there, um, there are some areas, there's a famous one called the four color problem. Um, the idea here is suppose you have any map and you want to color the map, you know, make regions different colors so that uh, you no know, two regions of the same color share an edge. Um, can you, can you always accomplish that with only four colors? And this was a problem in which eventually with a lot of work, a number of researchers were able to narrow it down to a finite number of cases, which is a big step. Just going from infinity to a finite number of cases is a, you know, big progress, but there were still like hundreds of cases and, um, and they were, they used, it was the computer assisted proof. And so this would be one of those cases where it'd be difficult for one person to get around to all of it. So um, I think that could happen certainly in some areas, especially because there's some other interesting developments where um, there are work in progress to, to formalize all mathematics uh, to make it completely rigorous by basically having it um, in computers where the computers are, you know, just like you would have to with a computer program where the proofs are um, put in a certain language that a computer can verify. And um, I believe they're within a few years, they think of at least getting the entire undergraduate curriculum completely, um, you know, understood by a computer, in which case, um, you know, there's speculation that perhaps, you know, you could start having, you know, some AI generated um, theorems and proofs. Uh, so, so I could see that happen in certain areas. At the same time, there are always new, new questions being asked and new areas of mathematics being developed. And um, so, you know, in the, it was already the case in the past where mathematicians would sometimes push in an area and then eventually get so bogged down that they would just stop chasing that trail and would go to new trails. Um, and so far, uh, there have always been new things to explore. Uh, now, of course, as we mentioned earlier, now there is just so much mathematics out there that you do oftentimes have fewer and fewer people who um, are working in the same area and therefore can understand all of that's being said or all that's being talked about. Um, but will we get to a place where the only interesting mathematics left to do is, you know, only at the level of just almost incomprehensible by humans? That's, I would guess that's not going to happen anytime soon because they're, again, they're just, you know, so for example, um, you know, with the, with the creation of modern computers, disc an area of mathematics called discrete mathematics, 
really became more popular um, and was driven by that. And so sometimes, um, you know, new mathematics would be spurred on in that way. And I have to just say one other thing. There was a um, famous mathematician um, uh, by the name of uh, Paul Erdős, really unique dude, really, really unique. All he did was mathematics all the time. Uh, but he, he did it with all kinds of co-authors. Uh, in fact, he, um, he co-authored papers with like hundreds of other mathematicians. And, um, but he, also not a religious person, but every once in a while he would be struck by a, a, a proof of a theorem that was so beautiful and so elegant. He would say that it must be the case that God has a book in which all the you know, perfect proofs lie. And so he would comment and sometimes see a proof of a theorem and say, that one must have come straight from the book. And, uh, and so you can, um, you can actually, there are now books of theorems that he thought like that of uh, what he considered to be some of the most beautiful proofs of theorems in, um, in his honor uh, that have been books have, have been collected along these lines. So yeah, interesting question. I think you will have you will certainly have some areas of mathematics that are like that, where you'll have some proofs that no human, no individual person can wrap their minds around, maybe more and more as more and more proofs are done with computers. But I think you'll also continue to have those fields in areas of mathematics where um, that's not the case. It seems inherent in your answer that a shorter proof is a better proof. Well, and in fact, this is what tends to happen. Many times at the beginning, when a complicated theorem is proved, it'll be a long and circuitous route and it will get shorter and shorter over time. You know, I mean, for example, you know, one of the theorems that kids learn in geometry class, the famous Pythagorean theorem of, of right triangles, right? A squared plus B squared equals C squared. I mean, there are well over a hundred known proofs of that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, this will often happen. So you might start with something that just feels out of reach but if, it's, but if it's considered important, then more and more people will look into it and study it, not just for the result, but because they want to understand the techniques. And many times it'll then get shorter. I also picked up on what you said about the computer-assisted proofs. There's a strong parallel there to the Bitcoin world, because in the Bitcoin world, you are encouraged to run your own node, which means that you have a full copy of the Bitcoin database. And every, when you start up your node, it starts with the first transaction, transaction Bitcoin transaction back in January 2009. And, and you are on your own hardware verifying every transaction. And that means that you are really your own bank. You are verifying the transactions. You're not using your own eyes essentially to do it, but you, you can look at the code. You can put together your own Raspberry Pi with your own components. You flash the memory yourself, and then you run it. So you are essentially doing a computer, you know, self put together computer proof uh, of that database of that copy. So yeah, which is actually yeah, I, th I think, and I think that idea. Obviously, we 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 who are into Bitcoin think that this idea of a decentralized database with no central uh, that can be taken out uh, can is is uh, revolutionary, really. Well, and again, there's something satisfying about that, right? Like you know, just knowing that in theory, um, you can check on things yourself. 
I mean, yeah. again, for me, this is one of the draws to mathematics. Um, being able to see it all built from the ground up, per se, to, you know, to see these things that I had learned and then knowing exactly why they're true and being able to prove it and verify it myself, there was a certain satisfaction in that. Yeah. And in this podcast uh, and in this uh, sessions, uh, we are playing on that slogan of Bitcoin that says, don't trust, verify. And we're saying, you know, don't blindly trust your worldview. Don't blindly assume what you believe about the world, but examine it, verify it, and then you can start to trust it. Uh, so based on this That's talk, right. we, yeah. yeah. Uh, so based on this say, talk yeah. about math, uh, you know, uh, I think in your talk, you're saying that math is a great tool to describe reality as it is, um, language of the universe, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I don't know if you want to go into this, or, but, but what I wrote here is, you know, how has the study of math formed your worldview? Why and how? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I would say in several different ways. The first is, again, just this connection that I already made that it's just striking. And again, we take it for granted now how that the universe is rational. You know, um, mathematics is done by minds, right? It's done in the mind. I mean, when I was studying mathematics full time, my day looked a lot like sitting at a table <laughs> and thinking and you get home at the end of the day and you know, hey, what do you have to show for your for your work? Well, it's all in my head, you know. There, uh, and and so mathematics is this product of the mind. So to then see this mathematics that's taking place in the mind, be instantiated in the physical universe, yes. that is striking. Yes. And for me, you know, there's a sort of a it suggests an it suggests another step. If mathematics I know is a product of the mind, and then I see the physical universe described and governed by mathematics, sure strongly suggests to me that the universe itself is a product of mind. Now this gets to the heart of worldviews, right? Because this is one of the fundamental questions in worldview, which is what is ultimate reality? Right. Impersonal or not? Personal, impersonal, and what I would say is that my study of mathematics strongly leads me in the direction that ultimate reality must have something to do with mind mm -hmm. and not just merely impersonal. So that's one thing. In a very different direction, um, mathematics in the in the study of mathematics is a lot like what we experience in life in that so much in life really is a big risk. You, there's a step, to some degree, there's a stepping out into the unknown. Uh, we never know what's going to happen on a given day. I mean, we all do our best, right, to plan for the future and that, but, but life, life is risky and it's uncertain and unpredictable. And studying mathematics, you know, when, I, when you first tackle a problem, 
you just have no idea how difficult it's going to be. You might, you might solve it later that day. Or it could be the case that nobody will solve that for the next 500 years. <laughs> so it's, it's intimidating, right? It's scary. You're, you're stepping out into this unknown. It's in, in many ways, you know, we, um, we, we should give <laughs> explorers of earlier centuries more credit what they were doing, these risks that they were taking to go discover, you know, at least to them, new lands. Boy, that, you know, it's a, it was dangerous, right? They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Well, you know, <laughs> when I would start working on a problem, it could turn out to be a colossal waste of time. Maybe it's going to be beyond me, or maybe I'm going to discover something beautiful. But those guarantees aren't there when you start. And you know, life is like this. You know, sometimes I think people in their own worldviews, they just, they find something that was comfortable for them and they just stay there. Instead of saying, well, maybe I should consider the possibility Mm -hmm. that there's something beyond what I've entertained so far. Maybe I should be open to taking that risk. Maybe I should be open to stepping into the unknown. Is this scary? Yeah. Do you know how it's going to turn out? Maybe not. But, but you know, this is what mathematicians actually have to do every day. And I think there's a beautiful parallel there in what many of us might need in life where we've lived in one narrow reality and now we're exploring something new and different that we don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. Well said. Yeah, that's interesting. You're really seeing that the courage is an important element to discover things that you haven't seen. That's right. It's risky. Yeah. It's risky. You could be wrong. Yeah. Uh, I have more questions, but feel free to jump in. I'd love to hear from, from you guys. Hello, uh, this is uh, Janet. Uh, I come um, from uh, the land of, as you know, Ramanujam, who actually worked in... Uh, uh, intensively on numbers theory, infinite yep. theories, uh, you know, continuous fractions and things like that. And uh, you had mentioned, uh, you know, uh, infinity and how significant that is. So I was just wondering, I mean, with the land that is 90% Hindus, how do you, uh, when, when I have friends who are Hindus, how do you, um, how do you relate mathematics, uh, simple mathematics or even complex mathematics to uh, the supreme being, and if you had to do it in mm. one example or, 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 yeah. or theory. Yeah. Well, firstly, yeah, Ramanujan was uh, just an incredible figure, and um, he's, he would say that uh, every number to him was like a special, um, it was special in and of itself, and uh, they're almost like little treasures to him. And he, and you may know this, he, um, you know, he had even a lot of mystical experiences connected with mathematics. Uh, and we'll talk about mathematics coming to him in, uh, in, in somewhat mystical experiences. Um, yeah, connecting mathematics to a, a, a supreme being yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I think, you know, I think there are several interesting, 
you know, lines of possibility. One is this, this, you know, what I've been spending some time on today of um, mathematics in connection with the physical universe and then the physical universe and, and what that says about the nature of the physical universe. I think that's, I think that's one. Another that I think is, is very interesting is there is this interrelationship where the way we get going with mathematics is connected first and foremost with our experience of the physical universe, right? So um, where do the counting numbers come from? Well, the fact that we can see discrete objects and we start counting those things. Uh, geometry literally means, you know, measuring the earth. And so it's um, taking these sort of shapes and, you know, the concept of lines and such that we see in the physical universe. And that gets us going with mathematics. And then, of course, as we've talked about today, mathematics just run off in lots of different directions that seemingly have no connection with the physical universe that then surprisingly connect back around again to um, to describe the universe uh, at very advanced levels. And so this suggests to me that all of this discovery is possible because of the kind of universe that we live in. In other words, we might not have ever even gotten to interesting mathematics if we didn't live in the sort of universe that we live in. You know, if, uh, um, if we didn't have an experience of discrete objects, if we didn't experience time in the way we experience it, if we didn't experience space and shapes in the way we experience them, maybe we would just never would have gotten going with mathematics at all. But because of the nature of the physical universe, we can get, we can get going with mathematics. And then once we get go, going with mathematics, we, again, do all these, you know, unexpected things. And, and again, where it's so fun for me is that um, just the surprises that show up in mathematics. Again, I mentioned this, uh, this quote by a professor that I had earlier. He said he studied the theorems of complex analysis <laughs> and his conclusion was, there must be a God. Um, and uh, just because some of the theorems there are so unexpected. Um, let, let, me, let me just give you one more really unexpected theorem. It's just kind of crazy. So it turns out that um, if you have a three-dimensional ball, sphere, you can divide that sphere into a finite number of subsets and then rear and then just move those subsets around without changing their shape and put them back together to get two spheres that are the same size as the original sphere. Now, that's wild. Uh, why, why should that ever happen? Well, that's, again, that gets us to this concept of infinity. It's because as soon as you have sets that are big, you know, that are, that are infinite, weird things start happening. And so, again, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, just, you know, connecting with the concept of infinity. I mean, you know, 
infinity is wild. Uh, you, um, you know, maybe you've heard of Gödel's incompleteness theorem, uh, which says that whenever you have a mathematical system that is strong enough to include the natural numbers, an infinite set, that you will have statements in that system that are true but cannot be proved. Well, that's surprising. Um, uh, we also know that you can't ever create enough. It's impossible to prove um, the consistency. There's no one. It's impossible to prove the consistency of a mathematical system without embedding it in a more complex system whose then consistency you can't prove, which means at its heart, <laughs> you have to take mathematics on faith. Uh, you cannot prove that, that our mathematical systems will not contradict themselves without embedding them, you know, in a, in a higher system who's, you know, and just moving the problem back one level. And so, um, yeah, I, all that in my mind, you know, suggests intriguing things about the nature of mathematics and the nature of reality. And, um, and, and, and some philosophers have then tried to take steps to say things like, well, the only way to make sense of these sorts of things, you know, the existence of, um, you know, these sort of mathematical structures and such can only exist in something like the mind of God and therefore, you know, becomes an argument for God's existence. It's pretty abstract, but, um, uh, and I'm not sure if that's answering your question. So feel free to ask a follow-up question as well. But uh, I think lots of interesting things there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think I'll uh, probably start the preliminary conversation and then refer them to you. <laughs> <laughs> Great question. Uh, any other questions? I, I have a few here lined up. This is a fascinating conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed your story about how they found the Neptune with uh, pure math. And, uh, you know, we seem to have this mind that has the capability to use math to explore evidence and then reach a conclusion. So uh, what would you say are our reasonable options to answer why we have such a mind? Like Wigner says, you know, why do we have the mental capability, as you said? So, so what are yep. some options or reasonable options that we have to answer that question? Good, good question. Here's what I can tell you the research says about children. So, Psychologists have studied the beliefs of children. And regardless of sort of what kind of home they live in, religious home, non-religious home, what they find is that um, by age four, at the latest, children are forming the belief that the physical world is the result of the work of an agent 
and in particular, a non-human agent. So, you know, you're saying here we have this ability, our minds are wired to think in this way. It's not just that, our minds are wired to detect certain things about the universe that suggest the existence of personal agents that are not human. So that's interesting uh, that our minds work that way. Now, in and of itself, that doesn't prove anything, but it is suggestive. You know, as I mentioned earlier, um, I think that uh, mind is behind the physical universe. And I think that the best explanation of our own finite minds is the existence of mind. Um, you know, there's a philosopher, um, eminent philosopher, uh, named Alvin Plantinga, who says that if we are only the, if there's nothing beyond the physical universe, if nature is all there is, then there's no good reason to trust the deliverances of our faculties when it comes to truth. In other words, if all our faculties only arose through a blind process of survival, then all of our faculties exist only to help us survive and nothing more. And so there is no good reason to trust their truth-finding capabilities. And uh, this, he's had this argument out for a while, and, um, and it's a strong argument. And so uh, I think the main options really are, you know, either there's mind behind our mind or there's not. And if there's not mind behind our mind, then I, I think we get into really challenging improbabilities. You know, as I alluded to earlier, you know, there are roughly 8.7 million living species on the planet who are surviving just fine right. <laughs> without these mental capa you know, capacities. Right. And so, you know, that's suggestive to me. So you're kind of saying that the, the very fact that we are asking these questions is evident or points in the direction that there's a mind behind behind our mind yes uh feel free to jump in i have more here to bring up uh here here's another one that that got me thinking uh i said i have a little uh a little lengthy one so bear with me so going sure. back to bitcoin uh now, Bitcoin, like I said earlier, is, is software, information, math, and, and cryptology, but already starting to describe a new and updated, updated physical future for, for human flourishing once you start uh, looking into it. Uh, so in other words, uh, you can say Bitcoin is like a mathematical model, and 
perhaps you can say a good mathematical model helps us interact with reality the way things really are. Okay. okay. So, as an example, uh, in uh, economics, uh, in monetary systems, uh, we call fiat the, the types of currency that basically only have value because the, the government says it has value. There is no necessarily human effort, time, or energy behind it. So fiat infinite printing, as opposed to Bitcoin fixed supply, we have strong reasoning for that feature of Bitcoin being really good to foster human flourishing, positive human flourishing. And the reason is, I would say, is that fiat is essentially breaking that mathematical law, so to speak, of mixing zero and one. For example, mm. presenting a $1 bill as a $1 bill when really there is zero energy, time or effort behind that. That's essentially mm. mixing zeros and one. Presenting one as something, well, really it is zero mm. because the $1 bill comes out of the printer with, with zero effort, you know. So, yep. so here's, here's my point. So in a way, this is bridging the metaphysical and the physical as you pointed out in your in your talk and, and and bitcoin has this very interesting feature of bridging the metaphysical and, and the physical do you know of or do you think there are any other opportunities for us to improve human life by possibly applying better better math models to some of the cornerstones of human society because you know money i would say is one of those cornerstones it really goes as, as to the heart of human relationships, money, you know, you, we, you, it's, it's flowing, uh, it's measuring human time, effort, and all. So I would suggest it's a cornerstone of human society. Are there other fundamental cornerstones where we may possibly improve human life if we apply a, a stronger and better math model? Great question. You know, I would say that a lot of areas of life and research tend to take big steps forward when they can be quantified in some way. Mm -hmm. There's something about that when you can get to that step that you can quantify some aspect of it and measure it and perhaps start formulating laws or making predictions, then many times a lot really begins to open up. Um, because you can, um, I think for a few reasons. One is you can get many times at least a much greater clarity. You know, a lot of life is very fuzzy. And, um, and when there's a breakthrough in an area and all of a sudden that something that seemed like just completely mysterious gets quantified, that clarity that comes can really be helpful to us. And, um, and so I think, I think this is one of the reasons why you really can, um, you know, get benefit here. Now, I, I wouldn't want to reduce, I wouldn't want to go so far as to say that like, uh, mathematics is all there is, for example. Um, and, uh, um, but I do think, yeah, quantifying areas does help us 
make big steps forward. I, you know, again, just uh, human beings were amazing. You know, there, there's certain things we're just really good at. And, and then certain areas where we tend to make uh, really bad mistakes. Um, so for an example, I mean, this again, this is a really mathy example. But a trick that statistics professors can do in a math class is they'll divide the they'll divide the class in half. And one half, they'll say, okay, I want you each of you in this half to take out a coin and flip it a hundred times and write down the sequence of heads and tails that you get. And the other half, they'll say, Don't flip a coin. I just want you to make up a random sequence of heads and tails and write it down of a hundred of them. And then the Professor will gather the papers, mix them all up, and with almost 100% precision, he can divide it into those categories where someone actually flipped a coin and those papers where they just made it up. Because as it turns out, we're terrible at actually inventing randomness. We make all kinds of improbably, improbable moves when we do that. Um, and, uh, and so there are certain things that just feel counterintuitive to us. And so we keep, so it's easy for us to keep making mistakes in the same fashion that if you can then quantify it, then you can guard against that. And so um, I, I think this is another area where that can happen because again, we tend to, uh, there's certain things that we can do really well and there's certain things that we just, tend to make the same bad estimates over and over again. And, uh, and so when you, uh, so for example, you know, when medical equipment, you know, gets made that, um, you know, allows, you know, a doctor may or may not think of all the different, you know, elements to a, you know, detecting a cancer or something else. And so sometimes these things can be quantified in a way that then a computer can look for it. And, um, becomes much more effective. And the other thing I would, I would say is human beings are this fascinating combination of creatures of habit and extremely predictable, and then in some surprising ways, unpredictable. But those ways in which our behaviors are predictable, I think sometimes we don't tease that out as well as we could. And I think, again, that can, that can lead to, to potentially some some benefits when we can start to quantify those areas of human behavior that really are more predictable, especially when you're looking at, again, human beings acting in mass, right? Uh, right. You know, that things begin to start to balance out. So I think there's all kinds of uh, possibilities. Yeah. I want to, I want to pick up on that. That, that gets me thinking about something that Jimmy song talked about in our first episode where he was making the case that we, we have, you know, two, dominantly uh, schools of economics now, uh, as I understand it, I'm, I'm not a specialist in that, but the dominant school for the last 70 years or so has been the Keynesian economics. And they have this fascinating idea that it is beneficial for society to print paper and just, you know, put it out there without any, any value. And, that, that, and the idea is that that is beneficial. And then the Austrian school is more traditional. Uh, they traditionally have, you know, backed up by gold or something that has a fixed or, or very low uh, inflationary uh, 
uh, asset. Uh, and he, Jimmy Song made the point that a fundamental flaw of Keynesian economics is treating human beings uh, with complete, as you can completely predict what they will do. Uh, for example, he made the point, you know, you, you cannot know what will be in fashion, you know, six months from now or a year from now. So that means that you cannot centrally plan your economy like the Soviets tried to do. Uh, and that is an argument why you need sound money, because then you're pushing the planning out to the agents. Mm -hmm. And and that money becomes a a like a, a data threat or a, or a data channel that informs people of of uh, how to make decisions of what dress to buy or what car to buy, etc. And when you mess with money, when you inflate your money, you're messing with that data signal and making it hard mm. for people to make informed decisions. Just like in the US now, we have very high inflation. I don't know if you feel that when you go to, to the grocery store, but it makes it hard for people to, to kind of know what is going on. And all that to say, uh, going back, you know, it got me thinking what, what you said, you know, if you, if you don't have a solid math model that describes and is applied the right way to, to human society, you have a mess. It, 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 it is very, very painful. This is true. Yeah. I mean, you have the same predictions, right? In weather, it's so right. difficult, right? Because right. it's just, right. you can only push it so far. Right. So we kind of the conclusion in, in that, and that point is that you need to know where to apply it and how. And uh, like you were pointing out, if, if you try to apply pure math to human behavior, uh, yeah, there is a level of unpredictability there that <laughs> will will bite you in the back. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we're going to uh, wrap this up shortly, but we may have room for one more question or comment if, if anyone wants to add something. Uh, if not, uh, I have one more question, kind of unrelated to what we have talk, talked about, but I'm just curious uh, when when Eugene Wigner, uh, basically in his conclusion, brings up the word miracle. Okay, what do you think he means with that? Is he, does he mean something that can't be explained rationally, or is he meaning something that uh, happens uh, uh, outside or or or? or different from what the natural laws would normally do? Good question, yeah. I, uh, it's hard for me to speak on his behalf, of course, you know, to know exactly what was in his head. I will what say was he this was paper written again? Was it 1930? 1960, or? I believe. 1960, okay. He was an agnostic, I should say as well. So, you know, again, not a, not a religious person, but I, um, you know, the word, I believe, is something, he would use it in the sense of something that's inexplicable mm. through any means that he is aware of. Okay. In other words, um, <laughs> here's, here's this thing that is, that 
is, and it's surprising, and I have no explanation for it. Mm-hmm. I think that's the sense in which he's, right. you know, using the word miracle. Right. That, that's a whole nother conversation. It's probably too long to go into now, but, you know, uh, if our normal everyday experience, you know, you, you walk out of your house and, and your car is there ready to, you know, if your car was floating in thin air randomly, you know, sometimes during the month, uh, it would be hard to get to work, you know? So, so uh, a certain level of predict- predictability is essential for, for us to function as, as beings. That's right. And, and, and that, that again, obviously helps us uh, identify when something happens out of the ordinary, but, but uh, I think uh, the debate probably is are, are out of the ordinary things uh, possible or completely impossible. So we'll, we'll save that conversation for later. <laughs> Sounds I, fun. I, I did bring up a few examples from physics in, in the last episode for those interested about, uh, you know, like quantum entanglement and uh, how atoms or, or electrons in atoms will just dematerialize at one level and, and rematerialize at another level. So you, you can, listeners can go back and, 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 and listen to that. Well, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, any any closing thoughts or, or comments, uh, Gabe, be, before we end? Yeah, thanks so much, August, for the opportunity. Uh, it's a fascinating subject, and I just invite those listening to really think deeply about this. Why is it uh, that these natural laws exist? Why is it that we can contemplate them? And why is it that what goes on in our human minds can end up connecting with such fantastic precision to what's actually out there in the physical world. I encourage people to think about that. Thank you for that. Uh, also, actually, do you have any, uh, do you tweet or is there a way for people to follow what you're, what you're writing or, or what you're, what you comes out of your mind? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do have a few videos up on YouTube. Uh, might be hard to find because I don't have a lot out, but I can share with you a link, uh, August. Uh, right. The it's called the Big Question. Okay. And um, and uh, so listeners might be interested in, in some of those some of those videos. Great. We'll we'll add that to the to the show notes. Thank you very much, Gabe, for joining us. Really appreciated that you you brought a unique uh, uh, aspect to this uh, and experience. So thank you. Uh, My pleasure. There, there will not be uh, a Zoom session for those that have been joining us for Zoom. There will not be a Zoom session two weeks from now, like usually. I will be traveling, so we'll push it out to a month from now. And then we'll bring up the topic of morality. Uh, we are really preparing a dynamic episode on morality with uh, three different people who will present their basis of morality. And then we will ask them questions and, and, and talk about that. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, and this helps you build a stronger worldview. Uh, I also would love to hear your questions and feedback from the show. The show email is info at bitcoinworldview.live, or you can connect on Twitter, uh, BTC Worldview. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, uh, goodbye. <laughs>